Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructive Fun Podcast. And actually, this is our first Swapcast. So this episode, we recorded about four months ago with Shamant Rao, who's the founder of Rocketship HQ. And if you don't know Rocketship HQ, they offer mobile user acquisition services that help their clients to hit their growth and profitability goals in capital-effective manner. Rocketship HQ also has a very popular performance marketing focused podcast that I was invited to talk on. And um, yes, I did not talk about performance marketing, but it was it was still a fun and engaging conversation. I wasn't supposed to do a swap cast or post this on the Structure of Fun podcast because I kind of felt weird about doing an episode where I'm interviewed and we're not interviewing somebody else. But anyways, uh, <laughs> this podcast episode got a lot of good feedback from other than performance marketing people as well, and especially from, from those. So we decided to to post it also on, on our podcast series because in the end, we tried to share insightful and informative and entertaining information with, with the gaming community. So anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode. Let me know how you liked it. DM, you know, you know, the typical channels. And without further ado, I guess it's it's myself and Shamant Rao. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Iron Source. They know you're here for good content, so they're not here to waste your time with long pitch. And they're here to tell you three things that you need to remember and know about IronSource. Number one is they're developing the most robust data-driven growth engine for mobile games. Number two, their secret sauce is closing the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth. And number three, they have an awesome, awesome, I have to say awesome medium blog and podcast called Level Up. And you can find it on Medium by just searching Iron Source Level Up, or you can find the podcast anywhere where you get your podcast from by just searching Level Up. This podcast also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Now, most of you are familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile. It's a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. AppsFlyer allows comprehensive measurement and analytics to help you to optimize the end-to-end player journey from acquisition to retention, from ROI to LTV. In practice, this means filtering cohorts of installs and then retargeting those cohorts with personalized experience based on engagement and in-app events. AppsFlyer also offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for bogus traffic. And it's not only us at Deconstructor of Fun raving about AppsFlyer. Playrix, Tencent, Playtica, Square Enix are among the many game companies that all use AppsFlyer to boost their business. To learn more, go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution data you can trust. Hey everyone, welcome to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. Our guest today is Mishka Katkov. Mishka has worked on hit games at Zynga, Supercell, Digital Chocolate, and Fun Plus, among others, and is the founder of the very popular and very insightful deconstructor of fun website and blog that is very, very much an authority on the entirety of the gaming space. I definitely recommend checking out 
the deconstructor of fun website and blog if you haven't done so already. In today's episode, we ask a very important question. How to build a gaming studio that can make genre-defining hit games, even though game mechanics and growth loops can be very, very powerful forces, what can truly drive massive and sustainable growth are culture, processes, and teams that comprise high-performing studios. And this is a perspective that I'm very excited to dig into today. I'm truly thrilled to get Mishka's insights that are distilled from hundreds of games from tens of studios in our interview today. I'm very excited to welcome Mishka Katkov to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. Mishka, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be on the show during this interesting time. <laughs> indeed, indeed, when we st- uh, indeed uh, very much so. Very excited to have you because I've read your writings for a long, long time. So you're certainly somebody I've wanted to have on the show for a while now. And uh, perhaps a good place to begin would be to ask you about why the topic we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. which is how to build a successful game studio. Why mm-hmm. that is interesting to you? Because that took me, uh, that surprised me a little bit when we talked last and I asked you, yeah. hey, Mishka, what, what would you like for this podcast to be about? And I really expected for you to say something about how to build successful game mechanics, how to, <laughs> you know, deconstruct an amazing game. Right? So, why is this important to you to speak about how to build a successful game studio? Well, uh, well, it's kind of, you know, that's a, that's a good question. First of all, it's important to me because that's my job. Uh, yeah. I've been uh, head of studio for the past almost five years in two different companies. And because I haven't built a successful game studio, <laughs> that topic continues to bug my mind. I started writing Deconstructor of Fun because I was working in product management and mm-hmm. I wanted to deconstruct successful games in order to understand what makes them better, what makes them monetize, what makes them retain, what makes them viral in order to use those same mechanics in the games that I was working on. And mm-hmm. and while I love talking about deconstructions and, and I love doing them still, uh, eight years later, it's it's what the pressing topic for me is just building studios. Because after all, let's put it this way, successful games, successful game mechanics, successful user acquisition, all of those come from successful studios. And it takes all of those things to bring together. And I'm just fascinated about that. Yeah. When you say how to build a successful studio, mm-hmm. are there component elements to that sort of overarching topic that you think yeah. about? What, what would be the sub themes under that? Yeah. Yeah. So w- when I think about a studio, I think about autonomous unit that can uh, concept, build, um, launch and scale, scale and operate a game. So that's basically the, uh, the description of a, of a studio for me. And the way I've approached uh, studio building, I've built one studio from the ground up and um, I've joined another one, which I um, um, scaled, kind of combined two different studios and then took a leadership of that. So two, a little bit of a different experiences. And the way I've approached studio building and, and kind of what makes studio is the same way as I approach deconstructions. I kind of try to take different notes and write about it and think about what are the elements. And if you would ask me, like, I actually have like seven points that I've been kind of adamant on what a successful studio looks like. For me, it starts with the right size teams. I've worked in different companies and sometimes when you're working in a corporation, Sometimes the uh, size of the team is important because that kind of gives you the weight inside of the company. 
Uh, I've also worked in and started even in studios where we had a very small team. It creates a lot of limits, which, which makes you in, which puts you in a very creative problem solving. Uh, but it also creates a lot of bottlenecks and bottlenecks creates risk and risk when they come together. Uh, that puts your schedules, your budgets and everything on, on hold. Uh, in terms of bottlenecks, uh, an important person leaves or you're unable to hire an important person because you only have one in those pipelines. So for me, like it starts off with having right-sized teams. That means starting small, but also it means you know starting small, starting experience, and starting with people that have worked together. But also it means, in my opinion, having you know the boldness to scale the team as you move forward, adding more and more elements. And I know that the, the work changes quite significantly going from nimble, agile, friends working together on a game to a bigger live game where you have user acquisition, community, marketing, all of that working together. And there's a lot of coordination. The work is quite different. But I, I think having the right size teams is step one. Uh, the number two for me was always software and art over presentations. So in a lot of studios that I worked with, it was very important to show different type of presentations and calculations on how much money this game makes. And they're almost valued in a way that if you come in, you say like, listen, this is a billion dollar opportunity. We're going after this. Suddenly your game becomes more important, even though you might not have anything than a game yeah. that is um, portraying tens of millions of, of revenue coming in at soon rate. So I, yeah. I've, I've first was adamant in the sense of software over presentations, but I've actually changed my opinion a bit. And when I'm kicking off new games or new studios, I always start with the art director. I think it's really important to kick off visual development because not only is it able to portray your vision, but it's also able to encourage and, and inspire your, your engineers because they all want to, they kind of see what the game will be. Yeah. And when you make a prototype, it's kind of hard to, you know, sometimes you understand it's fun or not, but sometimes it's, yeah. it's just a prototype. Yeah. So that's number two. The number three for me is benchmarks. A lot of the studios that are not successful are not playing their own game and not playing benchmark games. And right. there was this thing that I read about a Call of Duty studio. I think it was Sledgehammer or Treyarch. And when they originally started every Friday, they would devote the full day of playing games wow. of their competitors. Wow. Every Friday, full day. Yeah. And that kind of, I thought about it. I was like, that's crazy. 20% of your time playing games. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, we make games. Like as I've gotten older and I have family, I don't have time to play games at home. So it makes total sense to have everybody playing those games. And for them, it wasn't like, we're going to have fun. We're going to eat Cheetos and drink mm -hmm. Coca-Cola and play games in our underwear. No, no, no. They were taking notes. They were discussing. They were playing their own game. They were playing Fetter's yeah. game. And it's being humble. It's being humble in seeing what the other ones are doing. Like in case of Call of Duty, they're probably looking at dice and then what a Marvel's Games Battlefield was. And just yeah. taking notes, taking notes, taking notes, and, and, and always thinking that we're an underdog. So I think uh, yeah. the, the benchmark approach and, and de devoting time to playing other games is crucial. And kind of that leads to fourth element for me is playing your own game till exhaustion. So, yeah. um, you know, a lot of times there's cases where people are making game and they put it in test playtest cloud or usertesting.com or whatever your testing platform is. And they kind of look at player who is, continuing playing despite the testing time being over, which kind of indicates that the core game is very good and then it's, it's hooking them. That's one wow. thing. But also, I've, I've worked on unsuccessful games and one common characteristics with the unsuccessful games was that the team did not play their own game. And you can kind of see it from that. Like, if you're not interested in what you're doing, why would your player be? Right. And yeah, the fifth one for me is the respect towards players. 
So this goes more towards live operations. And in, by respect, I mean, understanding your players and, and listening to your community and doing the right things and not the short-sighted things, whether it's sales, whether it's different kind of uh, elements that you're adding your game to kind of monetize in order to hit quarterly uh, targets. That's short-sighted. So if you have that utmost respect towards your players, then you're able to create that content that also retains them. Yeah. And uh, six one for me is empowering teams to make the decisions. And this is some, something that has changed during the time. Empowering, it's a good word. It's a fine word. A lot of studios say that they empower their teams. So there's the thing where you empower, but empowerment also means that the team will take um, the ownership of the result as well. If the game yeah. sucks, that's the team's fault. That's nobody else's. So that, that will kind of empowerment as well. Like there's two sides of the coins. If you really yeah. want to take uh, decision-making power, you have to take the consequences of the decisions that you take. And in a lot of studios that talk about empowerment, uh, it sometimes leads to a situation where the decision-making is kind of moved down, but that the resources are still held centrally. And it creates this weird uh, tug of war in the sense where the team can decide what they do, but they don't have the resources decided on that to do. And they kind of have the ownership, but they kind of don't have the ownership. This is not empowerment. You can't empower somebody and not give them the tools to actually build what they want. And um, empowerment also comes with time boxing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, time boxing. And, and if you want to create an, uh, an organization with high level empowerment, you have to also create an organization where feedback and confrontation are normal. It is totally normal to confront the teams and have a critical discussion about what they're doing uh, because that allows them to improve where they're heading. The seventh one for me is like always ship. I think it's really, really important that you release games and see what the results is instead of kind of ending in this never, never ending loop uh, feedback and improvements and looking what everybody else is doing and kind of being afraid of what to ship. So yeah, those are the, the seven points. And that's kind of my deconstruction of what a successful okay. studio, in my opinion, looks like after fi- five years. But I think things change Certainly. and I learn. Certainly. I'd love to dig into some of these also because mm-hmm. I think some of these were in my original list of questions. Yeah. So one thing that I'm particularly curious about, having worked in very different studio cultures myself, mm-hmm. Is what you spoke about software and art versus presentations, right? Uh, I've been in cultures that is very PM driven, where mm-hmm. they bring in investment bankers. I have nothing against them. I know some great investment bankers, 10 PMs, but who are very quantitative. And yeah. I've noticed a very strong friction between sort of the very quantitative PMs versus the game designers versus mm-hmm. the game artists, right? So there's like a three-way friction. And I know you said, look, you would want to prioritize software and art versus presentations. What would your advice be to a culture that's, you know, let's say you, if you find yourself in a studio that's yeah. very PM-driven, Excel-driven, yeah. how would you work with that? How would you deal with that? Yeah. So that's a good question because I am a PM. I started my career as a PM yeah. and I'm that business school type of person. Uh, what was really helpful when I was studying, what would really opened up my eyes, like during the final years, we had this um, cross-disciplinary program uh, that you were able to join and it brought engineers, artists, and business people together. Mm-hmm. And before that, you know, I was, it was, you know, I was young and I was 100% doing all the coursework, everything with other business folk. And we all thought the same. And what I learned from that was our way of solving problems and approaching problems was 
categorically different between these disciplines. So yeah. where the artists or designer, in that case, they were designers, industrial designers, where they approached the problem was that they, they looked at details and they started bringing the big picture up from a small detail to a, to a larger scale. With yeah. engineers, it was always, what is the most efficient way to do this? Not the best right. way, but the most efficient way. Right. And, and, uh, and with business people like myself, we approach everything based on benchmarks. Well, this game does this, this game does that, this is the market, you combine this and this together, you get this and this, and by numbers, we're able to communicate very clearly to the upper management. And usually through that, we're able to kind of get the foothold, even though the foothold might be wrong. So in these type of cultures, like there's different uh, solutions that, that some companies have taken or some cultures have, have turned. For example, there, there are companies where PM, which are very PM driven. And what happened is that the designers started becoming more and more PME. They started to use more right. data. And I think that's a little bit wrong. I think it's good that they use data. But if they go full on and become kind of like junior PMs, they will still lose to investment bankers and, and the folks that devote right. 100% of their time. So in that type of culture, I think you make a big decision. If you are moving into a culture which, which is a very PM driven, I doubt that your company will ever release anything genre defining. You will be in a culture of incremental innovation. It's not bad. It can be very good. It can be very effective business. But I think you cap yourself. And then again, it doesn't mean that if you go to a full-on designer-driven uh, culture that you yeah. will land on that massive billion-dollar hit. Most yeah. likely, most of your uh, efforts will go to waste, but you will have that chance to, to succeed. So if, if I would be doing a recommendation, I, I would – and I, what I do like is I, I like – having a different composure to the teams that are starting. So uh, in the beginning, they're very design heavy. And as, as the project goes on, uh, the leadership of the team might even change where after the phase where they enter the data gathering phase, whether that is a soft launch or global launch, uh, the PM that has been kind of taking the backseat and helping out designers actually rises up and starts taking control of the whole project. Because after that, it becomes numbers game. It becomes right. a game of optimization. It becomes a game of insights. It becomes the game of benchmarks. And all the majority of the creative work has already been completed. And, and, yeah. and instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, it's, it's important to keep on pushing and going forward. Interesting. So what I'm also taking away is this is also dependent on the stage at which the game is. Yeah. If it's an initial ideation stage, really that's when the designers the art directors need to have more for driving force. Whereas when you're scaling, that's when optimization does become more important. That's when a PM does need to take more of the reins, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So, so when you think about a project, uh, it goes from design driven to vision and metrics driven. Right. And, and, and you, like if you start your design being metrics driven, I don't know what, where, where you're going to end up, but I, I have been on those. It, it's, Kind right. of clusterfuck. So I would move from design driven as you go through the stages of early concepting, pre-production, production, soft launch, hard launch, the design drivenness keeps on decreasing and decreasing. And at the right. same time, the role of a vision that still has to be there as well as metrics keep on right. increasing. And I've, I've usually kind of divided all the elements between production design and product. Right. Uh, and when it comes to usability, the core loop, the test and iteration, the core gameplay features, of course, those are design elements. When it comes to milestones, scheduling, backlog, grooming, scrum standups, that's production. When it comes to reporting, forecasting, stakeholder management, monetization, optimization, analysis, that's product. But there are still elements that are in between. 
And there are elements that are in between, such as economy balancing is something that the product and design does together. Feature yeah. prioritization is something that production and product does together. And when it comes to quality, people management, knowledge sharing, and team leadership, I believe that design, production, and product handle all of those elements together. Right. Something else I want to drill down on that you said was, look, the more sort of optimization driven you are, the harder mm-hmm. it is to build something that's genre defining, right? And by definition, something genre defining is really hard to pull off. I'm curious though, what other elements other than having the designers drive a lot of the early decisioning, what other elements would you say are central to having something be genre defining, which in a diff, you know, which could be like a Pokemon or Angry Birds in a different time. Mm-hmm. Right? How might you think about a studio with an explicit mandate to build something genre defining? I don't even know if it's a good idea to mm-hmm. give them a mandate to make something that's yeah, yeah. no, 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 that, that's a, that's a good mandate. Uh, I usually think about you know when I, when I think about studios and when I kind of evaluate studios, there's kind of three elements that really dictate what you should be doing. Uh, the first mm-hmm. element is what does the team want to do? What is their drive? What is their passion? Yeah. Um, sometimes that's overwhelming and then you end up with, with indie games or you most often end up with games that, that are impossible to complete. They start uh-huh. something super aspirational. Right. You know, World of Warcraft on mobile with a right. team of five. Yeah. Okay, good, good story. <laughs> uh, and and that's, that's a problem. The, the, the second thing that I look at is what is it that, that they can build? So they have a passion towards something. Let's say it's World of Warcraft and what they can build. And, and this is really the analysis of how many people you have, how much you can scale, what are their skills, what are their competences, where are they good at, where are they weak at? And you kind of start finding the, the, the element there. And the yeah. third one, and something that I did not understand during my first studio was, what does the market look like? Like, what do the players want? Where can we find our spot in the market? And kind of when you, when you think about the market, your capabilities and what the people want to do, you start finding that spot in the middle where, where the ideas are something that you can actually complete right. and they're actually market viable and um, they're actually something that the team wants to do. So, right. so that's usually the driver there. Um, even when it comes to genre finding, like most of us are, are quite creative. Uh, we always want to make genre-defining games. It's not like we want to make safe games. There's no such thing as a safe game, yeah. uh, unless it's uh, you know hyper-casual or <laughs> whatever, because it takes two weeks and yeah. it's kind of safe. You can just release and forget. Yeah. Um, but I, w- I would say, yes, the mandate would be there, but also understanding the market kind of opens up your view on what is there and what isn't. And genre-defining doesn't mean that you create something that absolutely hasn't been seen before if you think games like let's say heyday or clash of clans for sure you've seen farming games before yeah heyday was different yeah it had different elements but what really made it genre defining is it was first of its kind on a touchscreen device and and it was really designed for it and there were some cool you know elements that that made it quite, quite unique and that's how it blew up same thing with clash of clans i mean if you think about it, the, the difference between that game and, and some other build and battles like Backyard Monsters on, on Facebook was neglectable. Like I think the art style and the, the quality, the UX were far better, but most yeah. important, it was first of its kind on on mobile. And, and that yeah. makes it genre-defining. So those are the type of elements that, that also make a genre-defining game when you understand what is the market, what it does it have compared to other gaming markets. Right. And um, yeah. Right. That sounds like 
you want to be identifying what's similar to what's already there and what needs to be different and some clarity in that regard needs to be there. Yeah, yeah. but, but again, you, you're talking to a product person. So again, right. I, I start with the big picture and right. I, I, you know, I, I look at the market sizes, I look at the elements here and there and I think about, you know, this is kind of underserved, this is overserved, let's not go yeah. here. Uh, yeah. This is very concentrated, very less concentrated. What is in between here? Or, you know, I'd be playing Steam games, which I right. rarely do these days. And I would figure out like, hey, interesting. This type of thing does not exist on mobile. Uh, this is a paid game. Right. which has a very interesting core mechanic. But what if we would match it with RPG mechanics or RPG progression from this type of game? Right. Would it make something new? Well, yes, it would. And it can also right. start off from design process where, where you just understand how the category is evolving or the genre evolving. Yeah. Like in RPG games, people are just not playing them actively. It's kind of right. running on the side. And right. lo and behold, a few, few years later, idle RPGs appear where you where right. they're designed already in a way that you don't have to press auto battle because we know that you're going to auto battle them and we're right. going to design a full game around your new type of user behavior. Right. No, that makes sense. And speaking of something that could be genre defining or something that could be truly innovative, one dimension on which uh, that is possible is by releasing a game on a completely new platform, mm-hmm. which can be fraught with its own risks. Right. Uh, there are very many messenger games and we don't yet know if they're going to be breakout billion dollar games and so on and so forth. Same thing with Apple iMessage games. It's something that a lot of many, very many games have some presence on. I'm curious as somebody who's if building a successful studio team, how would you think about exploring a platform that's emerging and new uh, and assessing whether this is something to go all in on or not? Um, well, there you just have to take the risk. Yeah. It's, it's for the risk takers uh, when, mm-hmm. when a new platform emerges. Sometimes it works. Like, let's say, in case of Supercell, where they jumped on iPads. Yeah. And that was an emerging platform. And then they made iPad-first games. And, yeah. and, you know, a huge risk. But at the yeah. same time, the market grew significantly and they were able yeah. to, to truly conquer the market. And actually, it's good for them because their games are almost optimized for bigger screens. Right. Uh, and then on other occasions, like VR, messenger games, you know, message games, I think it's safe to say that those have all tanked. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not even a doubt. Uh, you know, maybe VR, Facebook is putting billions in it. So maybe they will get something out of it. Uh, AR seems to be kind of dead in the water as well with Magic Loop um, being sold uh, Mm -hmm. if if somebody wants to buy it. So you just have to make a call. And I think that's for smaller startups. I think they are the ones that need to be taking risk. I I don't think big companies are there to take a risk. And I think if they are there kind of jumping on a new platform, that kind of means that it's already oversaturated. Right. Interesting. So I understand correctly, if you see a big public company getting onto a new platform, iMessage or Snap, what have you, or VR, is your assessment that, oh, that's typically if the platform is somewhat proven and they see that, oh, this is a somewhat safe platform. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like an emerging platform. So that's right. one of those things, like it's not proven because there's yeah. no developers in it. I mean, there are a few. Right. It, it means that there's just a, a platform emerging and then it's up to the game developers to decide whether they want to invest right. into 
accessing being the first adopters of this new platform and right. possibly gaining gaining market share quite significant market share as a first mover sure. or not and the risk that they take is that the uh, the work that they done is going to be um, right. useless so yeah the, it doesn't make a platform if snap releases it or facebook releases it or right. apple releases it uh, right. but of course there's way more chance that it becomes a platform sure. rather than your nobody startup releasing a platform yeah. for yeah. games Indeed, Mishka. Yeah, I think, Mishka, this is perhaps a good time for us to start to wrap. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been very instructive, very insightful, much like so much of your writing has been. So oh, this is perhaps a good time to, to start to wrap. Before we do that, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, about Deconstructor of Fun, and what you're up to? Okay, so you don't need to find more about me personally. Yeah. Uh, but Deconstructor Fun is more interesting stuff. So DeconstructorFun.com, that's our blog. Uh, you can yeah. find Deconstructor Fun podcast. We do yeah. two different type of series. We do the This Week in Games. So I really suggest you subscribe to that. It breaks down news every week, not just free to play. Also a lot yeah. of AAA, a lot of cross-platform, a lot of different stuff. And it's uh, quite entertaining, if I may say. Then we do also like these type of interviews with folks around the industry. The blog is it's pretty big. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's grown quite a lot. And um, there's just super detailed, super in-depth knowledge. Exactly. You can't read through anything without a coffee cup and a couple of sittings. But Indeed. it's what our readers like. And I... And I'm, I'm happy that people are uh, adamant of consuming in-depth analysis versus Absolutely. like five liners of this is how you monetize your game, five yeah. tricks. Yeah. Like, that, that's yeah. useless. Yeah. I mean, it's the in-depth analysis is what, that's what really helps us learn and mm -hmm. use and implement a lot of things in the games that we work on. So certainly that's why it's impactful. Uh, Mishka, this has been incredible having you. Thank you so much for being on the Mobile User Acquisition Show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. If any of this was helpful or instructive, I would love for you to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This podcast takes a ton of time, effort, and love to produce, and I deeply value every review and every piece of feedback that you share. Thank you for listening, and I will look forward to sharing our next episode soon.